two places, Romans 11, as if you didn't know, and Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah 11. Is that Colleen? Hi, Colleen. Two Colleen's. There's one behind you, Colleen. Colleen, Colleen. This Colleen jogged here, and I know you came by car, so. We may be all jogging here in a couple weeks because of the check out the alternate routes. They're going to close Coxcomb Hill. That's of the devil, of course. It's a devil's plan. Romans 11, <laughs> Romans 11 and Jeremiah 11. This is going to be called the Jeremiah Connection. We're winding down our Better Call Paul series. And our next move, as far as I know, this is prayerful and careful, will be Romans the Epistle. And I guess you could still say it's under the general umbrella of Better Call Paul, but we're going to be pretty specific in Romans. Speaking of that, Romans eleven seventeen, and we'll have a few moments of silent preparation. Once again, Father, we think of Psalm 24, 7. Open the gates and let the king of glory come in. And that's what we're doing tonight in our hearts. We're allowing Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith. We ask now that the king of glory come in to this assembly. Enlighten our eyes with his glory. We thank you that we are related to the Lord of glory. If the rulers of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. But we're grateful for his crucifixion, for his resurrection, for his exaltation, for his enthronement at your right hand, Father, to be your co-regent, the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. May the word that we receive tonight produce a worshipful disposition and attitude, produce gratitude, produce mercy, humility, and hope. And most of all, as the bond of perfection, love, which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which you have graciously and eternally and permanently gifted us with so we thank you for this privilege in Christ's name amen Romans 11 verse 17 but if some branches were broken off Paul is still speaking to the Gentile Christians in Rome Rome is a shattered fragmented church doesn't come out as Easily as we see it in Corinth, but there are at least five groups in Corinth. Paul is speaking here to the Gentile Christians who are strong in faith, as Romans 14 identifies them, but they despise the weak in faith. And so he's speaking to them in 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentile Christians, and Sunday morning we'll continue our series, at least I'm intending to, on Hey, you Gentile Christians, curb your enthusiasm. If their enthusiasm or their zeal is rooted in the idea that Israel was broken off so that they could be placed on the olive tree, they are barking up the wrong tree. If some branches were broken off, Paul speaks of this. Same group in Israel, the hardened part. The hardened part of Israel is hardened in part and hardened for a time it does not reflect their eternal destiny, their final destiny. If some branches were broken off in you, Gentile Christians, though a wild olive tree, that is, from the Gentile pagan nations, were grafted in among them, 
and have become a participant in the richness of the root of the cultivated olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is, the broken off ones. If you are, that is, if you do want to continue to be arrogant and be boasting, you aren't sustaining that root, but the root is sustaining you. Now, in the net notes, the New English Translation notes, I've picked this up, and I think this is important. He says, they say, in note 12 on Romans eleven sixteen, most interpreters see Paul as making use of a long-standing metaphor of the olive tree, the root and the branches, as a symbol for Israel. And they say, see in this regard, Jeremiah eleven sixteen, where we're going to turn pretty soon. Eleven sixteen and 19. Then they cite a scholar named A.T. Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N, studies in Paul's technique and theology, pages 121 to 24, cites rabbinic use of the figure. That's the use by the rabbis of the figure of the olive tree. And goes as far as to argue that Romans eleven seventeen to 24 is a midrash on Jeremiah eleven sixteen through 19. A midrash, of course, is a rabbi-type teaching or an explication, an explanation, a fanning out of a particular doctrine or passage of scripture into a teaching. I call the bread of life discourse by Jesus in John 6 the manna midrash. It was a relationship of the manna that fell in the wilderness for Israel as a symbol of the bread that came down from heaven whose flesh is life for the world, that being Jesus Christ in John 6.51. I am that bread of life. He said, I think this bears out that it is a midrash on Jeremiah 11 in Paul's argument in Romans 11, because the resounding theme in Jeremiah 11, and you can turn there, I'm just going to summarize up to verse 16 very briefly. The resounding theme there in Jeremiah 11 is the breaking of the covenant by Israel and Judah which Yahweh enjoined to their ancestors, commanded to their ancestors. Now we could argue that that covenant that God gave to their ancestors was a conditional covenant because he said, if you obey my voice, then you will be my people and I will be your God. The new covenant that replaces that is unconditional and unilateral. It isn't if you will, I will. It's I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. The new covenant ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant is unilateral, unconditional, ultimately universal. And it's mediated by one Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. Giving strength to the unilateral covenant is its mediation by a second divine person who is also man, where we have much more to develop on that. So the resounding theme in Jeremiah 11 is the breaking of the covenant by Israel and Judah. And he mentions them both distinctly. Israel, technically the northern kingdom. Judah, technically the southern kingdom, which contains the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. The kingdom was split. The kingdom was therefore fragmented. It was split because of Solomon's divided heart and his going after idolatry. So it's the breaking of the covenant by Israel and Judah, which Yahweh enjoined or commanded to their ancestors. Jeremiah, and I'm summarizing the first few verses of of Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah was to proclaim these words in the cities of Judah. And the streets of Jerusalem, just like Jesus did as he forecasted the destruction of the city in A.D. 70, so Jeremiah forecasted the destruction of Jerusalem 
that would occur in 586 B.C. His ministry was 40 years long. And then Jerusalem was destroyed. And so Yahweh, through Jeremiah, had strongly warned the ancestors of Israel when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt all the way until Jeremiah's day in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. The warning was simply to listen to my voice. Now we still have that warning. We still have be attentive. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's not because the covenant we're under is conditional. It is because if we want to live the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, it is through the word of God. It is through keeping the engrafted word. And Yahweh, though, when he brought them up from the land of Egypt, which was a divine act of deliverance that did not require their cooperation, until Jeremiah's day in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C., the warning boiled down to listen to my voice, be attentive, in other words, in 11.7. In 11.8 of Jeremiah, they have not listened or been attentive. Instead, they've lived in the stubbornness of their own hardened heart. Note the connection, Paul's day, Jeremiah's day, and Jesus' day. A conspiracy, he says in verse 9, was discovered among the men, mainly the leadership of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's day, that conspiracy included, let's kill Jeremiah so that he dies and with him his prophecies die, his message dies. And in Jesus' day, let us kill the son of the vineyard owner. And take over the vineyard. It was a conspiracy. It was discovered among the men of Judah. And the residents of Jerusalem. In verse 9. Leading to apostasy and idolatry. Yahweh then. The God of Israel says. In 10b. Of Jeremiah. The house of Israel. And the house of Judah. Broke my covenant. I made with their ancestors. He then prophesies disaster, and he makes it very clear which it is a disaster which they brought on themselves. In 11.11, just as Jesus did from the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem in 30 A.D., and it's a judgment and a disaster from which they cannot escape. They will cry out, he says, ineffectually, of course, to the gods, which they have multiplied. Jeremiah said, Yahweh says through Jeremiah, you've multiplied your gods to be like the number of the cities in Judah and even like the number of streets in Jerusalem. In other words, everybody's got their own God. As many streets as are on Jerusalem, you multiply your gods as many Cities as there were in Judah, you've multiplied your gods. I don't even want to think of the parallels to the United States of America today. I don't even want to think about it. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Now, since I'm not going to think about that, and then he goes on to say, All these gods are under Baal, and they continue to burn incense to Baal. Now, please notice this case. Baal goes back to Elijah in the first part of Romans 11, where Elijah cries out against Israel. He makes a complaint against Israel, and he says, they have killed your prophets. They've overturned your altars. And what does God say in an oracle to Elijah when Elijah said I alone am left he said I have on reserve for myself 7,000 men 
who have not genuflected to Baal. And we explained that that's not just a tiny remnant, but it's the pivot upon which the whole of national Israel turned back to God. And that's what happened, historically speaking. And that turnaround gave them over 100 years more of prosperity and blessing. So there's a connection with Baal, the first part of Romans 11. Yahweh then tells Jeremiah in 11.14 a command which is echoed in 1 John 5.16b. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that you should pray for it. Don't pray for it. Don't pray for it. Jeremiah actually says here and earlier in the temple complex, don't pray for Jerusalem. This is going to happen. Don't pray for them. Because God says, I'm not listening. How many would obey that command? Don't pray. But I'm a prayer warrior. Well, I'm not listening. If he's got a mind to allow someone to bring upon themselves something in order to wake them up and convert them, well, he will. Then in Jeremiah eleven fifteen, I know this starts off hard, but it gets better. It can only get better. We can only go up from here. Jeremiah eleven fifteen again, Yahweh asked two questions. What right does my beloved, he calls Israel his beloved still, my beloved. Remember what Romans eleven twenty eight says. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake, but beloved because of the patriarchs. So he says, what right does my beloved have to be in my house? having carried out so many evil schemes. Can offerings of holy meat, that is, presentations of offerings, ritually speaking, protect or prevent your disaster so you can rejoice? Now, here's where it gets, where Paul is doing a midrash, a rabbinical or rabbi-like explanation. And I've done the translation on this from the Hebrew, because Paul seems to take this one from the Hebrew, not so much from the Septuagint. In Jeremiah eleven sixteen, Yahweh says through Jeremiah this, you, speaking Israel and Judah, have been named a luxuriant olive tree. That's where the olive tree comes from. It's rooted in Jeremiah. There's a deep connection, a wide connection between Paul and Jeremiah. In fact, I think much of the early part of Romans is a midrash of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. Let not the strong man boast in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me and that I exercise righteousness, divine deliverance. I exercise righteousness in the earth. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. There is a deeper than you would imagine connection of Jeremiah with Romans and with Paul himself. Paul is actually thinking of Jeremiah when he said, God separated me from my mother's womb unto the gospel. And he said that, Jeremiah, I've known you since your mother's womb, God says to him in Jeremiah 1.5. I've called you to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah. Paul says he's an apostle to the nations. There's a wonderful connection here, a deep one, a powerful one. And without that connection and seeing it, we don't grasp what's going on here and what Paul's all about here, what Paul is up to here. You, Israel and Judah, have been named a luxuriant olive tree, beautiful in fruit and in shape. He shaped the tree. It was luxuriant. The root was rich. It produced olives and olive oil and expensive oils. And it was named an olive tree. Then he says, with a great warring, roaring and rushing sound. This is kind of reflected in Second Peter when uh, 
heavens will dissolve with a great roaring sound. He's not talking about the dissolution of the universe there, but the judgment on Jerusalem the second time. He says, with a great roaring and rushing sound, the Lord has kindled a fire on it, that tree. Now, here's where it gets very important. And its branches, having become useless... That's the apostasy and idolatry of Judah and Israel and the, as the olive tree are broken. That's what the Masoretic text says of the Old Testament, which I generally don't lean too heavily on. But in this case, I do because Paul did. Paul talks about the branches being broken. Some translations say consumed. That's why I did my own translation here. The branches aren't consumed. They're broken. But people translated it as consumed. The branches are consumed as if they're all burned up and there's nothing left. Because it makes sense to their natural mind that if you set fire, then the branches burn. But in the fire that's set to this olive tree, the branches don't get consumed. They break. They break off. And Paul grabs a hold of this because he says these branches that are broken off through unbelief will be grafted in again because God will disannul the unbelief of Israel, not their election. He will disannul their unbelief. That's coming up in 1122. So broken here. And Paul uses the word... Eklao. Now, this is this fascinated me today. I almost got lost in the woods on this one because it was so neat. Eklao. That means to break in Romans eleven seventeen. Some branches were broken off, and this squares with the Hebrew raa r a a, which means two things. In fact, raa is used twice in the Hebrew, and it means to break in this case through a disaster. Now, we know it's not consumed because in Lamentations 3.22, the same author, Jeremiah, says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. So you can't say the branches were consumed. They were broken off. They're broken off. There's hope of a regrafting. If they're consumed, they're annihilated. This is all very important to... The interpretation. Then he says in verse 17, Yahweh Sabaoth, or the Lord of the armies, who planted you, he planted you, Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdom, speaks disaster. Guess what that word is? Ra'ah, same word in the Hebrew. Ra'ah, in my phonetic spelling, which is a phenomenal translation. It looks like this. Ra, ah, ra, ah. The word is used as double. The broken off and the disaster or the evil of a disaster are both the same word with different nuances of meaning. So the Lord of the armies planted you, who planted you, speaks disaster upon you. The planting is the election. The disaster is a judgment that does not destroy their election, It destroys their predilection for idolatry and for apostasy. The Lord of the armies who planted you speaks disaster upon you because of the evil, ra'ah, of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have brought on themselves to provoke me to anger by making sacrifices to Baal or Baal. Jeremiah then says this in the midst of this prophecy. He says, Yahweh caused me to know that I may really know. If Yahweh tells you something, you really know it. Like Dr. Mary Neal that we mentioned last night. They said, how did you know that was Jesus Christ in your death experience, your near-death experience? And she said, I knew it on an absolute level. And that's exactly what Jeremiah says. Because the Lord made me know, I know now on an absolute level. There's no, it's unqualified. It's unqualified assurance. He knew something he couldn't know by himself. An oracle 
is a divine revelation of something you couldn't know yourself. Jer- Elijah couldn't have known that there were 7,000 people that God had as a pivot to turn the whole of Israel. He couldn't have known that himself. God revealed it to him. Yahweh also showed Jeremiah because prophets have this one thing in common. They are allowed into the secret counsel of God to understand his mysteries. Jeremiah, I make that Proverbs 3.32 and following. He intimates like he did with Jonah, like he did with Noah. He intimated what was coming. And so Noah busied himself building an ark. So, scientists are now saying that they believe in Noah, but they don't think he gathered all the animals. They think he gathered a bunch of DNA samples from all the animals. So God made this giant boat so that you can have this little square box of DNA. So, people don't leave much room for the supernatural. Now, if I get to heaven and find out it was the DNA samples that he took from all the animals and put them on there and then just start it all over again, then God shows me that, I'll say, okay, I believe it. But when Discovery Channel tells me, I don't really quite get it quite yet. Or I don't know if it was Discovery or Nat Geo or one of those. They have some good stuff on them, but grain of salt. Make that truckload of salt. Um. So he says in verse 18, Jeremiah, Yahweh caused me to know that I might really know, that is to really understand. He gave me an insight, that is, on an absolute level. Then he showed me their deeds. He couldn't have known what they were doing, as Paul said, in the dark or in their homes or in their gatherings. And God showed him, gave him a vision of what's going on, and it shocked him. That's what's going on. I wouldn't want a vision of what's going on in the homes of America. I don't want to see what people are seeing on their devices, on their TVs, on their screens, on their expensive 55-inch screens. I don't want to see it. But if Yahweh shows me, I'll have to look at it and then say, please erase that. Or as Frazier said, let me poke out my mind's eye. But that's what happened to him. He showed him the horrific evil of his time. That's what a prophet has to go through. When Jesus came, he said, before I came, you had a cloak for your evil. You had a cloak for your sin, he said to the religious leaders. But now I've come, he said, I've shed a light on that and shown that your righteousnesses, in so many words, are filthy rags. That you're filled with dead men's bones. You're like sepulchers and tombs filled with dead men's bones. You build monuments to the prophets like Jeremiah. And you say that you're the children of that generation. And by saying that, you prove that if you were alive when they were alive, you would have killed them. You build the monuments to the prophets that you would have killed if you were there in their time and in their place. You don't believe that? It's Matthew 23, 29 to 31, or thereabouts. Close enough. But before I take on too much of the mantle of the prophet, let me continue. Before this disclosure, Jeremiah said, before he showed me this, I was like an unassuming lamb being led to the slaughter. Meaning, I'm just out there preaching. I didn't know what they were doing. You know what they were doing? Conspiring to kill him, cut him off from the land of the living, and cut off the fruit. And he wasn't married, so he wasn't talking about his kids. God says, you're not going to get married, Jeremiah, not in this place. You're a prophet. You can't get married in Jeremiah 16. So they're not talking about the fruit that is his children. They're talking about the fruit that is his prophecy, his book. We still got it. So look at what he says. Before this disclosure, I was like an unassuming lamb ready to be led to the slaughter. I didn't know they were conspiring to kill me. Remember Elijah. They killed your prophets. Now they're trying to kill me. Paul said the same thing. They killed your prophets. They killed the Lord Jesus. And now they are seeking to kill and persecute me so that I can't get to the Gentiles with the gospel. So 
So when your guidance counselor says, what do you want to be when you grow up? Don't say prophet because the general consensus will be that people will want to kill you. I didn't know they were conspiring with me to kill me, saying, let's destroy the tree. Isn't it wonderful how they speak symbolically? Let's destroy the tree. Jeremiah the prophet with his fruit, his prophecies. Let's cut him off from the land of the living. That means let's kill him. So that his name will not be remembered anymore. Well, I don't know any of the names of the conspirators, but I do know Jeremiah's name. And contrary to Three Dog Night, he's not a bullfrog. And that's a picture of our generation, of our time now. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet. And still today, there are people who don't know his name. There are people on the street that don't know who the president is or who the last president was or who the first president is. You ask people on the street, who's the first president in the United States of America? Um, Theodore Roosevelt? I've seen, I mean, it's nuts. I can't even watch that even. I have to stare stare into the middle space and just instead of watch things now, I don't know what it is. But anyways, I guess it's just that I hate this present evil age. Before this disclosure, Jeremiah was like an unassuming lamb. Then he says, thanks be to God, is what I say, that Jeremiah's name is remembered and that his prophecies have survived even to this day, 2,700 years later. We still got Jeremiah's prophecies and we still got them invested powerfully in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, and they still make powerful prophecies impact on our souls today they didn't erase his name and they didn't kill his fruit they didn't do away with his prophecies even though one king took his prophecies that were in book form and shredded them with a knife and threw them in a first in a fireplace and that's recorded in jeremiah also we still have it i'm going to say a couple things about prophets in our way here We have explored the connection between Jesus and Jeremiah. Both of them preached in the temple complex. Both of them warned about a destruction that would happen 40 years later. And Jeremiah preached all the way up to that time. And there was a magnificent connection. We've studied that, I think, during Revelation. But here... We are noting the connection of Jeremiah with Paul. Here, Jeremiah, a prophet to the nations for whom Paul has so much affinity as the apostle of Jesus Christ to the nations, identifies at least obliquely or indirectly with the Lamb of God who was led to the slaughter. That's the prophet's calling to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Paul said it this way. I'm carrying about all the time the dying of the Lord Jesus in this body, that in this body the life of Jesus may also be manifested. I'm constantly being handed over, paradidomy, to death for Christ's sake. Paul was a prophet. Paul was an apostle. It's the legacy of the prophet. Or not legacy so much as destiny, calling. So once again, note the reference to Baal, which connects this part of the argument to God's oracle to Elijah regarding the 7,000 men who had not genuflected to Baal. Here, Yahweh speaks through the prophet Jeremiah about the more and more inevitable coming destruction of Judah and Jerusalem in his time. You can see the affinity of Paul with Jeremiah in Galatians 1.12, 1.16, Romans 11.13, Jeremiah 1.5, many other places throughout this epistle. The spokesman of God is often conspired against by his own people.
even as the word of God incarnate was. Jesus said this, and it's one of the few sayings that's recorded in all four Gospels. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Mark 6, 4. Matthew 13, 57, in different contexts, Luke 4, 24, John 4, 44. When Jesus spoke his first message, which was inclusive, talked about the widow in Elijah's time that was a Gentile, talked about Naaman the Syrian, who was a Syrian general and a Gentile. It was inclusive of others. What was the response to this prophetic word? Let's kill him. Let's throw him off the cliff. That means put him in the pit, then stone him to death. He's a false prophet. He said, today this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in your ears. The anointed one is among you. What did they do in his own hometown? He couldn't do miracles there, scripture says, because they didn't believe in him. The same is often true about a prophet. In his own time. Not only in his own place, but in his own time. Prophet is not how many people that we have known, preachers that we have known, preachers of the past, were hated in their own time, but almost virtually adulated generations later. Because the prophet is not does not have honor, nor should he expect it in his own time or in his own place. Neither in his own place, Mark 6, 4, or in his own time. John four forty four, Luke 4, 24, Matthew 13, 57, Mark 6, 4, his own place. But the same is also true about a prophet in his own time. Jesus spoke to the leaders of Jerusalem and he reprimanded them. I, got, I do have the passage right here. For building monuments to the prophets whom they would have rejected and killed if they were living in their time. Matthew twenty three twenty nine to 31. Here's the principle. Prophets are generally without honor in their own place and time. Though there may, they may have a hearing audience among some believers. Case was true for Isaiah, for the second Isaiah and the third Isaiah. The case was true for Jeremiah even. The case was true for Jesus, the prophet like Moses. Principle. Second principle. Religious people will commit murder... And even kill the prophets of God to protect their idolatry. Which in effect is the preservation of their own lives in the Adamic ontology. Today people are much more subtle. Their murder is verbal. It's called slander. It's called maligning. It's called gossip. It's called let's destroy them with the sword of our words with the arrows of our tongue. Let's destroy them with the poison of our lips. Let's destroy them. So the principal religious people will commit murder, even kill the prophets of God to protect their idolatry, which is the same as the preservation of their own lives in the Adamic ontology. Those who think that the word of the cross is foolish are perishing. You know what perishing is? Perishing is the cherishing of the Adamic ontology. That'll help you understand it through, through a poetic device. Perishing is the cherishing of the Adamic ontology because if you keep that life, you'll lose it. You're perishing while trying to keep the life in Adam. People will do anything to preserve their lives in Adam, even if it means kill the prophets, even if it means kill the Son of God. We don't know the depth of evil. God has to show us what the depth of evil is. We can't see it in movies. We can't see it in ISIS. We can't see it in... There's evil there for sure. 
And there's more and more of the truly demonic coming through the movie screens today. I would say beware. Be careful. The truly demonic is on display. And it has an opportunity of assaulting the minds of young people in a way that you don't even want to think about or imagine. The Lord has shown me this. And so I know it. The parallel between Jeremiah and Paul is deep and wide. Both were separated from their mother's womb to serve God. Separated away from everything else. For the gospel is what Paul was. Both were to speak to the nations and both had a message about Israel. Jeremiah spoke and wrote in anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Paul wrote and spoke in anticipation of the destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of Israel after the flesh in A.D. 70. That's in Romans eleven twelve, where he talks about their defeat. In both cases, the disasters that overtook Israel, listen, here's where we're taking the uptrend now. We've been in the downward. I'm going to take you up now, so don't cut me off now. Don't stop listening. In both cases, the disasters that overtook Israel were not evidence of their final destiny. What happens in history stays in history. It doesn't flow to eschatology. You can make that a principle if you want. Principle, then, another principle. The final destiny of Israel, of all of Israel, Romans eleven twenty six, is salvation. It's one of the most controversial, audacious things Paul ever said. And so all Israel will be saved. That really chapped the Gentile Christians who thought that the branches were permanently broken off to permanently be replaced by the Gentiles. Man, were they mistaken. They were replacement theology people. Jeremiah needed Yahweh's help to see Israel and Judah's deeds, what they were up to. God had to show him. That's because the grievous root of their idolatry was concealed. As so much of our idolatry in America today is concealed. It's concealed idols. You can't see the idols. They're concealed. Sometimes it's even in the subconscious part of the mind where one believer despises another believer, doesn't want to be around another believer, isn't hospital, hospitable in the sense of generosity of spirit when they're around in church, this other believer. It's because in their mind they are cherishing the Adamic ontology and it's as arrogant as hell if there were one. So the prophet has to uncover the covered idolatry the things that are hidden will be brought to the surface nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest Jesus said so I know you're saying that's still negative when Jesus Christ also known as Yahweh revealed to his prophet he had no recourse but to proclaim it what he saw And for that reason, he was conspired against. Paul experienced the same thing. He saw not only the sins of his people, he saw the pious deeds of his people as being idolatrous. He saw what sin had done in hijacking Torah. Paul experienced the same thing. Likewise, though Jeremiah prophesied historical judgment and defeat brought about by the actions of Israel and Judah themselves, he later prophesied a new covenant in which all of Israel and Judah would be restored by God's action without recruiting human help. The act of men brought about catastrophe in that case even though the acts of men today cannot bring about ecological catastrophe. And people just step up to microphones and say, if you deny 
they equate the denial of man-made disaster, ecological disaster, with the denial of the Holocaust. So you're already on that same page. You're a Holocaust denier. Do you realize that's happening in our country? Now, I'm not going to comment on that because that starts to get me off my calling. And I defer to Tony on that one because he's, he's brilliant on that score. And he'll be bringing a message soon, and not necessarily on that. He has other insights, too, that are theological. Now, in this case, the act of men brought about national catastrophe. The act of God in Christ would bring about a universal apocatastasis. Apocatastasis panton. I think we've spoken about that once or twice before. In Acts 3.21, an apocatastasis that would gloriously include Israel and Judah. That is, Israel after the flesh. He's not talking about, he says Israel and Judah. He's identifying people that live in Israel and Judea and Jerusalem at that time. He's talking about people that were not at the time believers who will be saved. Consequently, whether in Jeremiah or in Paul... The disaster against the branches or their being broken off was not the final or the ultimate destiny of the branches. Some translations, again, read consume, just like they do let their backs be bent down forever in Romans 11.10. That's not what it says. It says continuously until a point in time, an eschatological future, not forever. But if you're already bent on sending half the world to hell and most of Israel to hell, you're going to say forever there. But that's not what the Greek scripture says. Just like here, it doesn't say they're consumed and therefore annihilated. It says broken off. But you can understand it humanly because it seems to make sense. If a fire is kindled on the olive tree, the branches would be consumed. Maybe I don't know the science of this. Maybe if you did set fire to an olive tree, it wouldn't consume. Maybe the branches would break off. I don't know whether that's agriculturally correct or not. It doesn't matter. Paul is referring here to a breaking off that anticipates a grafting in again. Broken off to be grafted in again, as Paul explains it in Midrashic style, as a good rabbi. Jeremiah seems to correct this mistranslation in Lamentations 3.22 in a famous verse, we are not consumed because of Yahweh's mercies, we are not consumed. And guess what? That's what Paul's thinking about because Romans 11 doesn't end at 36. It goes right into Romans 12.2. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you by the mercies of God, which are the mercies by which you cannot be consumed, You present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because you're a kingdom of priests. You have an offering. It's your own body to be transformed by the renovation of your thinking so that you're no longer conformed to the thinking of this present evil age, but you're delivered from it through the word by the spirit. These are the very mercies of God that Paul alludes to when he writes... In Romans 12.1, in continuation of Romans 11, I urge you, therefore, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies. Now look, moreover, on top of this, this is where it gets really good in Jeremiah 23. Look at it. You're going to be glad you hunkered down And let the storm come on you in the first part of the message because the last part's going to lift you up with elevating grace. 23, 5 and 6. The days are coming. Same Jeremiah. Same prophet. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, he says. This is Yahweh's own word I'm repeating here. Thus says the Lord. This is Yahweh's own declaration. When I will raise up a righteous Branch. Who's the righteous one in Romans? Who is he? 
The righteous one will live because of his faithfulness. And that means that everybody lives because of the faithfulness of the righteous one. Jesus Christ is the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. This is bypassing Jeremiah, though it's spoken through his mouth. When I will raise up a righteous branch of David, I refer you to last night's message, a branch of David, the offspring of David, as well as the root of David. He will, wait a minute, raise up. What does that, where is that coming from? It's anistemi, it's resurrect. The time, the days are coming when I will resurrect a righteous branch of David. To resurrect a dead branch makes it entirely possible that God can graft in broken branches. He will reign wisely as king. And administer justice and righteousness in the land. There's the word righteousness. The key word in Romans. In Romans 1.17. In his days. And guess what his days are? Forever. Now there's a forever. His days are forever. His goings forth have been from eternity to eternity. His days are forever. So he's talking about the days of the resurrected king. Which are all the days forever. In his days, this is what he will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. This is what he will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. You think Paul might have been thinking about Jeremiah when he said in 1 Corinthians 1.13, this is God's 1.30, God's doing, who has made Jesus Christ to be for us righteousness. I think he was. The New Testament writers were loaded up with Old Testament scripture. So should you be. So should I. So get low tech and read the Bible. The righteous branch will be raised up. Anistomy, a word for resurrection. And in his days, which are forever, Judah will be saved. In his days, Judah will be saved, it says, and Israel will dwell securely. Paul interprets Israel and Judah being saved in a certain way. He says, and so all Israel will be saved. What is Jeremiah saying when Israel, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely in his days? What's he talking about? Part of Israel? The Israel that's alive when he comes, the few hundred thousand that are there when he comes, or all of Israel who will be raised from the dead because of the righteous branch? Paul interprets it as all Israel. I'm on Paul's side. Paul interprets it as all Israel in Romans eleven twenty six. That's where we're headed. He interprets Israel as all Israel and Judah as all Judah. Indeed, the gospel is the power of salvation to all. It is the gospel is the power of salvation to all. You say that's all who believe. Yes. But not exclusively all who believe, because this is a faithful saying. He is the savior of all mankind, especially of those who believe. Not exclusively of those who believe. First Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Now, but we're going to get to the pastorals before we get to Romans anyways. Here's the principle. Don't you see even here a radical Christocentricity even in Jeremiah's prophecy? The Lord our righteousness. Note also the reference to the resurrected righteous branch in connection with the broken branches. How do you heal the broken branches? By a righteous branch that's raised up. In whose days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. All Israel that has ever lived. Why? Because their restoration is going to be life from the dead. From the dead. That includes the dead. 
I don't know how many ways I can say it, but I'll say it every which way I can. Principle, Israel's historical disasters are not indicative of their eschatological destiny. Even if America was to endure an historical disaster. Hints are all around the edges now about that. Even if America were to experience a disaster, it would not be indicative of America's eschatological destiny, final destiny. In fact, Israel's historical disasters are rather anticipations of their glorious destiny. Because resurrection always follows crucifixion when it comes to God's plan. The broken off branches will be grafted again into the beautiful and productive, cultivated, divinely cultivated olive tree. And be beautiful in shape and fruition because of the righteousness of the branch that is resurrected. Nobody else's righteousness. This is Paul's interpretation of Yahweh to Sidkenu the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is the righteousness of Judah. When the Redeemer comes, what does he do in Romans eleven twenty seven? He takes ungodliness right the hell out of Jacob. That's what he does. Takes it right out of Jacob. He's the righteousness of Israel. He's the righteousness of the church. He's my righteousness. He's your righteousness. He's the righteousness of the nations and of humankind itself and in total because by his one righteous act, all are given rectifying life, all in Adam. We got patriarchs. We got David, the lineage of David. We got Abraham. We've got Adam. Adam is the biggest patriarch because he comprises the whole of the human race. And all in Adam are made alive in Christ. All that died in Adam are made alive in Christ. That's not me. That's Paul. Still again, let's just hit a couple more and we'll close. By the way, that's Rome. That's Romans 5, 18 and 19, which is the heart of the heart of the heart of the matter in Paul. Let's look at Jeremiah 31. Speaking of days that are coming. Look, he says, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. This is what Yahweh has said through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, which echoes in Paul's epistles. The days are coming. This is Yahweh's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Same people he talks about in 11 in a disaster sense. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke, even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make. I will make. It's unilateral with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. He keeps stopping and Jeremiah has to say, this isn't me talking. This is Yahweh using my mouth. Thus says Yahweh, I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What did he say in the other covenant did when they came out of Egypt in 11, four of Jeremiah? What did he say? He said to Israel, he took him out of the hand out of Egypt. He said, obey me 
and do everything that I command you and you will be my people and I will be your God. What does he say in the new covenant? Don't, he just says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Period, over and out. It's unilateral. Verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me. Thought I was going to scream the word all. I won't. I just said all. They will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them. The Lord's declaration. Yahweh says this, not Jeremiah. Yahweh through Jeremiah. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. What's wrong with that? This is the new covenant. It's unilateral. It's an unconditional covenant. It ultimately pertains not only to Israel, but there's a thing called new creation. The new covenant pertains to the new creation in which God says, look, I'm making everything new by the new covenant, by the blood of Christ's cross. He reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions on down. As I said before, from principalities to parsley. Reconciled. The new covenant is a unilateral, unconditional, universal covenant, ultimately pertaining not only to Israel and Judah, but to all of creation, which God is even today making new. Because if any person is in Christ, there's the new creation in progress. And the mediator of this covenant is one Jesus Christ, who's speaking on the eve of his crucifixion said this this is my blood which ratifies confirms the new covenant it is shed for many but we've already studied that many and it means everybody it means all many means all The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life a ransom for many. But Paul interprets that in 1 Timothy 2.6. He offered his body. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Many equals all. The same is true in Romans 5.18-19. The justification or the rectification of the many is the rectification or the justification of all. It's all. He is a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, making us merely a proleptic and provisional community and a foretaste of a universal community. This is my blood. It is shed for many. And on top of this, and we will close with this, going a couple minutes later, Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen. These verses hit me today with such joy and such elevation and such zeal with such enthusiasm they hit me so hard I hope that as you embrace them and cherish them they hit you just as hard they lift you just as high I hope they do that in those days speaking of those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely Jesus said to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem and Jerusalem, you have killed the prophets that have been sent to you. And he says, but then that wasn't his final word. In 2339, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes with the name Yahweh. They will say it. The very Jerusalem he's speaking of in his time, who will have died long since been dead, will be alive. And they will say, blessed is the name or he that comes in the name, or better, with the name, Yahweh, Yahweh Yeshua. He prophesies disaster. Historically, he prophesies glorious restoration, eschatologically. Historical disasters do not give evidence of eschatological destiny. What does he say in 33.16? This is what she will be named. She will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah is merely one of the prophets 
all of whom spoke as God spoke by their mouths of a universal apocatastasis in Acts 3.21. Jeremiah is among them. Yeah, but Jeremiah prophesied judgment. Yeah, but he was aiming at, just like Paul was in 11.26 to 32, mercy upon all. Don't you see his ultimate message was one of universal restoration? Don't you get it? Don't you get that that's Isaiah's message in 65, 17, 66, 2? Don't you get it? All the prophets spoke ultimately in ultimate terms of a universal restoration that included Israel. And so all Israel. Paul went one better than Luke. He went one better than Luke who said apocatastasis pantom. Paul said Anakephaliosis, tapanta, and Christo. The recapitulation of all things universally in Christ. That goes even further than Ana. Anakephaliao, in other words, goes much further than the apocatastasis of Luke. As Jesus referred to it, what did he call it? In the palingenesia, the regeneration, which means the new Genesis in the again, Palin, Genesia, Genesis. When Genesis happens again and I create all things new, he said to his disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones and that included Judas. Judas was there. You men will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the Palin, Genesia. What does that mean? It means that his 12 disciples will be on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which means that they will be pronouncing and exemplifying Israel's acquittal, their rectification. Because God's in the business of rectifying the ungodly. If you're God, it's what you do. So thank you, Father, for the message of Isaiah. What a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword that proclaims disaster and judgment and then proclaims in a supersession of prophecy a righteous branch, a resurrected Savior, a crucified and risen Christ, a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a wonderful message. We thank you, Father, that the force of Jeremiah's message is still felt today. And the force of Jeremiah's prophecy made its way powerfully, omnipotently into Paul's epistles, especially Romans 11. And it's made its way tonight into the hearts of a little cadre of believers in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. For that, we thank you.